Well, this morning, we're wrapping up a series of messages that we've entitled Scary Families, Taking the Fright Out of Family Life. And we're going to begin this morning where we've started the last six weeks with a few scary family photos. Now, you see, by now, you, you've been learning these lessons, and it's been having its impact in your family. And we've taken so much fright out of your family already. Is that true? I mean, certainly that's true. I mean, dad is now taking responsibility and the parents are back into control. And they're no longer playing favorites in your family. Grace is reigning in your house. And everyone is real and up front with God and with each other. And family members are loving each other rather than using each other. And both husbands and wives are guarding against infidelity. You've been learning these lessons. You've been applying these teachings that we've been having these past several weeks. And since you've been applying these lessons and making such progress, you've probably forgotten what a scary family even looks like. And so, I've got a few photos this morning to remind you of what a scary family might just be like. Number one is a blended family. But I would suggest that family needs a little bit more blending. You get the feeling that the bow ties and the biker is about to square off. There's a con confrontation in the near future. To me, that just looks like a scary family. Photo number two is a family that's into sports. A child has a football, another child has a soccer ball, but they should have given more thought to who actually got the baseball bat. You look in the eyes of that daughter, man, and that's scary. Well, these next two photos are in honor of Father's Day. Photo number three is of a dad diapering his child. There he is. And it is great to see a dad that's involved in the raising of his son, in the care of the baby. But is it just me, or is it a little scary to put the changing table under the gun rack? And then number four, and I'm sure you've been waiting on this, it's the last of the scary family series photos. It's time for the boys to get their summertime trim. You know, dad's haircuts are a rite of passage for most families, but with these three brothers already bald, notice the young man in the chair has every right to be a little scared. Well, by now, you know that the Bible is packed full of scary families. The scary families outnumber the model families. And I want to wrap up our series by focusing on one family that I believe is a microcosm of the entire human family. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells the story of a father with two sons. The story is often called the parable of the prodigal son, but it would be better titled the parable of the prodigal sons, plural. For both sons were prodigals. And whether a prodigal lives an unrighteous life or a self-righteous life, either creates some scary dynamics. Well, in verse 11, Jesus begins his story. A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided them to them his livelihood. 
And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country. Apparently, the baby brother had felt stifled living under his father's roof. And so he decides to fly the coop, spread his wings, assert his independence. And so he asks his dad for his share of the family fortune. He strikes out on his own. Commentator Warren Wearsby, he provides us some insight here. He says, it was perfectly legal for the younger son to ask for his share of the estate and even to sell it. But it was certainly not a very loving thing on his part. It was as though he were saying to his father, I wish you were dead. Well, how rude. How crude. How self-serving. You know, by, the very ne- by their very nature, families are social units. Families require unselfish interaction. Giving and sharing and waiting and listening and helping. You see, a family's health rests on each other's willingness to sacrifice their own individual rights for the good of the whole. In the words of the Three Musketeers, a family motto should be, all for one and one for all. But here, this family gets scary. For the father's younger son isn't thinking about dad or about his brother or about anybody else in his family. All he's concerned about is numero uno. He wants what's coming to him right now. Now don't forget, his inheritance was earmarked for him. He was in the will, you might say. It's going to be the younger sons in time. But rather than respect his father's hard work and his generosity and patiently wait for a gift given, he disses his dad. He feels entitled. He thinks his dad owes him. I want my stuff right now. And notice Jesus said he gathered it all together. Apparently the boy wasn't planning to return. In his mind, he was packing up for good, man. I'm out of here, he says. And then he journeyed to a far country. Now, the Jews listening to this in the days of Jesus, they probably thought of Antioch in Syria. Antioch was a city known for its lax moral climate and its sensual attractions. Think ancient Las Vegas. They actually had a saying in Antioch, what happened in Antioch stays in Antioch. Well, this son, he leaves a loving home for Sin City. Verse 13. And there he wasted his possessions with prodigal living. And here we get that word, prodigal. Prodigal means wasteful. The boy wasted his father's vast riches. Man, he hit the streets of Antioch and he joined the party scene. He snorts and drinks and smokes it all away. He uses his money to win favor and buy affection. This younger son hawked his daddy's hard-earned wealth and traded it in on cheap thrills. His older brother will later speak to his dad of his younger son, and he'll say, he devoured your livelihood with harlots. You see, this younger boy, he adopts an X-rated appetite. He spends his time in peep shows and massage parlors and strip clubs. He lived a life that would make a sailor blush. Thomas Huxley once wrote, a man's worst difficulties begin when he is able to do just as he pleases. You see, the test of a true character, the test of a person's character begins when the restraints are off, 
when there's no one to tell him what to do anymore, a.k.a. the college freshman or the rookie recruit. You see, here's the definition for the word character. It's what you are when no one else is looking. That's character. And this father's younger son proved to have very little moral character. And your heart goes out to this dad. For there is nothing as scary and as painful as knowing that you got a son or a daughter out there running wild. You've got a child that has thrown off all discretion. That he's living a suicidal life that's ignoring God's word and mocking God's values. You know, my heart bleeds for families who are forced to watch an adult child waste away his or her life. You can't imagine the heartbreak if you've not been there. The Black College Fund has a motto, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. And indeed it is. This younger son, he not only wasted a good mind, but he spoiled a clear conscience and a healthy body and a tender spirit and a noble reputation and a likable personality, all on vain, foolish pleasures. He threw away his dignity and his integrity. Verse 14 tells us, But when he had spent all, there arose a certain famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. When this kid first hit town and had money to burn, Everybody was his pal, but now all his rowdy friends have abandoned him. The party animal is all alone. Unable to reciprocate a favor, he receives none. The only job he can get is feeding the swine, feeding peas to swine. It was a miserable, embarrassing, humiliating task for anybody, but especially for a pork-hating Jew. Verse, four, verse 16 informs us, of, of, informs us of his desperation. It says, And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate. He would have gladly eaten what the swine were eating. I mean, when your diet has been diminished to raw pig feed, trust me, friend, you've hit rock bottom. This boy had walked away from buffet dinners at his father's table. Now, now he finds himself pigging out with the swine. Hey, he's no longer bringing home the bacon, that's for sure. And we're told no one gave him anything. Isn't that interesting? The only person who had ever given him, who had really given him something, was his own father. It was his dad who had been generous, who had really loved him and given to him. Verse 17 lets us eavesdrop in on the young man's thoughts. He's sitting there in the pig slop. When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and despair, and I perish with hunger? I notice this marvelous phrase. I'm always stunned by this. Jesus uses a marvelous phrase. He says, But when he came to himself. I, I hope you've had a moment in your life when you came to yourself, when you realized what you were doing, and you were wasting your life, and you came to yourself, and you realized God had something better for you. I hope that's happened to you. This boy, he came to his senses. He came to himself. 
Now that his pride has been shattered, for the first time in years, he can see his situation clearly. He remembers the kindness and the generosity of his father. His dad treated the hired help better than his son was now living. Just the scraps from his father's table were a feast fit for a king compared to cheap peas. This is why the younger son concludes in verse 18, I will arise and I'll go to my father. And I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Notice the transformation in this boy's attitude. You know, when he left home, he said, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. But now when he returns home, it's make me like one of your hired servants. Notice he goes from give me to make me. And when you go from give me to make me, that's a big deal. It's a sign of a person's sanity when he's more concerned about who he is than what he has. When suddenly he begins to care about his character again. You see, this is what you learn in the pig pen. Happiness isn't found in wanting more. It's found in needing less. Well, this son is living in a far country. But verse 20 tells us what he did. And he arose and he came to his father. Abraham Piper is the son of popular pastor John Piper. And for years, Abraham had renounced his faith. He would lived his life on the wild side. And his behavior had tortured his parents. Finally, he returned and repented and renewed his faith. Recently, Abraham Piper, he gave some advice for parents with a prodigal son or daughter. He writes this, If he or she has an inkling to be with you, don't make it hard for him. There are instances when parents must give ultimatums, but these will be rare. And then he gets more specific with his advice. He says, If your daughter stinks like weed or like an ashtray, then spray her jacket down with Febreze and change the sheets on her bed after she leaves. But let her come home. If you find out your daughter's pregnant, take her to her 20-week ultrasound and protect her from Planned Parenthood. But by all means, let her come home. If your son is broke because he spent all the money you lent him on loose women and ritzy liquor, then forgive his debt as you've been forgiven. Don't give him any more money but let him come home. If he hasn't been around for a while because he's been staying at his girlfriend's apartment, urge him not to go back, but let him come home. I hope you see the point. If at all possible, let the prodigal child come home. For who knows if this trip home won't be the time when he finally repents of his sin and recommits his life to Jesus. Who knows? This was obviously the attitude of the father in Jesus' story. He was so eager to welcome his son home. Notice what he does. When he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. The dad let the prodigal come home. Even after the boy had wished his father was dead and wasted away his riches, like our Father in heaven, the dead in this story showed grace. He poured out love on his son. Love that the boy certainly didn't deserve. Understand, Jesus tells this story up against the backdrop of a stern, harsh, 
Middle Eastern patriarchy. The father reigned supreme in Jewish society. Respect was mandatory, and it was enforced. Deuteronomy 21 said that a rebellious son could be taken before the elders of the city, judged incorrigible, and then stoned to death. That's what makes the love this father shows so breathtaking. This is a break with the cultural norm. This father's doing something no father does. This story injects grace into a world full of ungrace. Here's a dad who's been waiting and he's been watching every evening. You'll find him on the front porch with that faraway look in his eye. He's longing to see his wayward son turn the bend and head down the home stretch. In the Middle East, elderly men never, ever ran. It was beneath them. It was beneath their dignity to run. That's what makes this father's action so stunning. One day, he sees his son off in the distance. He is so overcome with emotion that he jumps off the porch and he sprints down the long driveway to welcome his boy home. Notice, he doesn't yet know the kid is coming home with a change of heart. He can't see the tears in the boy's eyes or the humility that's now etched in his face. He's still at a distance. The dad can barely make out his figure. All he knows for sure is that this is his son. This father doesn't care that the boy smells like swine. It doesn't bother him that the kid is grimy and dirty. He still falls on his neck and he kisses him. In fact, the original language implies he covered him with kisses. It's been said of God, he catches his fish, then he cleans them. God doesn't wait for us to clean up our act before he loves us. He takes us as he is. And this is the love we need to have for our prodigals. Your kid might smell like slop. He or she might be a real stinker. But don't let it stop you from throwing your arms around him or her and covering their kisses with your love, or covering, I'm sorry, covering their sins with your kisses. Did you get that? That's a good line. I blew it the first time, but I'm going to repeat it again. Don't let their sin stop you from covering their sin with your kisses. Be hopeful that the boy or girls come home. Hey, don't give them any money until they repent, but let them come home. Here's the truth about sin. Sin not only breaks a law, it breaks a heart. And if your heart has ever been broken by a prodigal child, you know this to be true. But if you want to represent God to your child, you have to fight the urge to get bitter and grow calloused. You have to be willing to extend the grace that you've received. You see, with Jesus' help, even a wounded heart can forgive one more time. Welcome the prodigal back home. In the 1980s, Mel White was a ghostwriter for several leading evangelical Christians. It was a shock when he came out of the closet and revealed his homosexuality. Once his parents were being interviewed, the reporter asked his mother, Do you consider your son an abomination? His devout, conservative Christian mom replied, Well, he may be an abomination, but he's still my pride and joy. What a blend of grace and truth. She didn't deny male's sin, but his sin 
didn't stop her love for her son. Again, former prodigal Abraham Piper, he adds a thought. He says, point them to Christ. Your rebellious child's real problem is not drugs or sex or cigarettes or porn or laziness or crime or cussing or slovenliness or homosexuality or being in a punk band. The real problem is that your child doesn't see Jesus clearly. Jesus will replace whatever they're staking their eternities on right now. Only His grace can draw them from perilous pursuits to bind them safe and satisfied. Hey, do two things. Let them come home and point them to Jesus. You see, it's not until verse 21 that the younger son opens his mouth. Jesus tells us. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. Remember back in the far country, the son had composed an apology. He, he thought out what he should say. He probably wrote it down. He might have rehearsed it over and over on his journey back home. Now he launches into it, hoping that his father will accept him back as a hired hand. But the father doesn't even let him finish. In verse 22, the dad interrupts him. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fatted calf here and kill it. And let us eat and be merry. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Hey, before the kid can even finish his apology, his father orders his servants to fetch the vestments of sonship. Not a robe, but the best robe. And don't just bring it to him. Put it on him. The father says to his servants, put a ring on his hand. Entrust him with the seal of the family's business. And put sandals on his feet. Servants went barefoot. I want my son to wear sandals. And bring the fatted calf. For the father, the son's salvation was a cause for a family celebration. Obviously, there was no thought in this father's mind of his son doing penance or serving a probationary period or spending a few years proving his sincerity. He instantly restored the boy to his place in the family. I'm sure that this father could see the change of heart that had occurred in his son. When the kid left home, he was into himself. Now he's signing up to serve. I'm sure this father would have taken a different tact if the kid had come home with hostility still in his heart. I mean, it's not love to enable a prodigal to continue to be wasteful. But this dad shows how fully and how freely forgiveness should flow when it's greeted with real repentance. Ironically, everything this younger son hoped to find in that far country, he finds back in his father's house. He went out looking for a party, but he found the best party only after he came back under his father's roof. Hey, if you have a prodigal, make this your hope and prayer. Mercy and forgiveness and restoration. I'm sure that you know that Jesus' story is called a parable. A parable is a literary device that parallels a deeper truth. In this story, Jesus is illustrating God's love for sinners. This beautiful love this dad has toward his wayward son is a picture of the heavenly Father's love for you and me. Isn't that amazing? 
You know, a story comes out of Spain about an estranged relationship between a father and a son. The son had rebelled and he'd fled from home. The father had searched the countryside for the runaway, but to no avail. Finally, his journey had led to the crowded capital of Madrid. But how would he find his son in the midst of such a vast throng of people? Well, the father had an idea. He placed an ad in the newspaper which read, Dear Paco, meet me in front of the newspaper office at noon tomorrow. All is forgiven. I love you, your father. Do you know what happened? The next day at noon, 800 men named Paco <laughs> gathered at the newspaper office. The father's plea struck a chord in the hearts of estranged sons all over the city of Madrid. It stirred up a desire in them that's common to every single human being. The need for forgiveness. You know, a secular commentator once wrote of our modern age, it's amazing that in an irreligious culture like ours, the sense of guilt is so widespread and so deep-rooted. You know, we've been told there's no such thing as sin. Guilt is unnecessary, yet we still feel guilty, don't we? Deep down inside, prodigal people still long for forgiveness. But what's scarier than a prodigal is for him or her to come home, to find their way home to a family where there is no forgiveness. That's a scary family. Don't be like that family. If the Savior lives in us, how can we not love and forgive? This is why the scariest scenario isn't the prodigal who wakes up in the pig pen and wonders, what in the world have I done? He comes to himself and he realizes how far he's fallen. No, the scarier attitude is the self-righteous brother who's still living at home, who's unwilling to forgive, who's oblivious to even his own sin. Once there was a Sunday school teacher who had just finished a, a lesson on Luke chapter 15. She decided to review it with the class. The teacher asked, who was sad when the younger son returned? Well, the answer she expected was the elder brother, but that's not how little Billy saw it. He answered, the fatted calf. <laughs> well, that's true. I mean, what two characters became sad when the younger son returned? The fatted gaff and the older brother. The younger son is not the only prodigal in Jesus' story. The other prodigal appears in verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. What's he doing? He's working hard. He's doing his duty. He's being a good son. He's helping his father earn some money rather than waste his money. And he came and he drew near the house. He heard music and dancing. And so he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. He preferred to stay on the porch and pout. Reminds me of the two brothers who grew up on the seedy side of New Orleans. A life of crime had earned them a notorious reputation. In fact, one of the brothers was stabbed to death in a bar fight. Well, the surviving brother, he asked the local pastor if he would do the funeral. He said, Pastor, everybody knows that my brother lived a rough life, but please, for my poor mother's sake, 
Will you stretch the truth a bit and, and just mention that he was a saint? Well, the pastor couldn't believe what he was being asked to do. He said, I could never do that. I'm a man of conviction. Well, that's when the brother, he reached in his pocket and he pulled out a, a big roll of $100 bills. And he says, you know, pastor, it's kind of obvious the church building around here needs a little facelift and, and I might could help. Are you sure there's no way that you could convince, be convinced to say that my brother was a saint? Well, the pastor, he kind of sheepishly kind of took the wad of money and he said to the brother that he'd give it a try. On the day of the funeral, the pastor, he stood in the pulpit and he, he began his eulogy. He said, we're gathered here today to say good riddance to one of the most selfish and evil and corrupt and dishonest men this city has ever seen. But compared to his brother right there, he was a saint. <laughs> and the same could be said for the elder brother in our story. For based on all outward appearances and compared to his wayward brother, he was a saint. You see, the older brother, he respected his father. He worked hard. He was frugal with his dad's money. The older brother had lots of friends. He was a personable guy. He was just a good, all-round boy, the kind of man that makes a parent proud. Here was a fellow who had obeyed his father outwardly, but none of his father's kindness and mercy and compassion had ever rubbed off on him inwardly. You see, sadly, this older brother had lived for years under his father's roof, but he had never understood his father's heart. It can happen. The elder brother served his father, but it was never a labor of love. All he was doing was racking up pride points and inflating his ego and building his case for a bigger piece of the pie once his old man had kicked the bucket. It wasn't as obvious, but he too had a scary attitude. And the elder brother resented all this fuss over his younger brother's return. I mean, all the years that the little brother had been down, it had lifted him up. In verse 21, it's from his lips that we learn that the younger brother had consorted with harlots. Apparently, he'd been keeping tabs, even from a distance. This elder brother was self-righteous and arrogant and uncaring. And to top it all off, he was oblivious to his own sin. He could enumerate his brother's sins, but he was blind to his own. The father, his family and friends all bubbled over with joy at the return of the younger brother while he boiled with resentment. His father partied inside while he pouted outside. I was once talking to this man who said he was glad that he was going to hell. That's what he told me. I was trying to share Jesus with him, and he, and he mocked me. He said, man, I'm going to hell, and I'm glad. Hell is where all the babes and the booze are going to be. I'm going to hell so I can party. Understand, this fellow had it backwards. There are no parties in hell. The party takes place in the Father's house. Heaven is the party. Notice here the shouts and the laughter and the making merry. It's coming from inside the father's house, outside the elder brother. He just pouts, man. And this is what you need to know about hell. It's full of powders. Hell is full of sulking, 
resentful, angry folks who are mad at the world. Nobody in hell is in the mood to party. Everybody in hell is burning with envy. Everybody thinks they're better than what they are. They deserve better. Hell is full of self-righteous people who see everybody else's sin but their own. That's what hell's about. Hey, hell won't be a party. Hell will be a feud. People will spit in each other's face and stab each other in the back. Gossip and envy, resentment and bitterness, put-downs and personal attacks will all be commonplace in hell. Hell will be constant infighting and perpetual turmoil. And you know what? Nobody will be there to break it up. You don't want to go to hell. Notice verse 28. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. This is wonderful. Here's a father with no bias. It's amazing, really. He's willing to run down the road to greet his wayward son, but he's just as willing to leave the party for the porch to reason with his elder son. Here's what I hope you see this morning. The world that we live in, this this world, it's one big, scary family. And it's full of prodigals. And prodigals come in two varieties. The unrighteous and the self-righteous. The heathen and the hypocrite. The lustful and the legalist. One prodigal wastes his father's riches. The other prodigal, he wastes his father's grace. Well, verse 29 records the older boy's beef with his dad. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, notice it's not my brother. Oh, this son of yours. In his mind, this is justifiable anger, man. This isn't fair. Listen to his rationale. He says, This son of yours who has devoured your livelihood with the harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him? I mean, how does this work? A dad who rewards perversity? In essence, he's saying, what kind of father are you? Well, in verse 31, the father explains his heart to his older son. And he said to him, Son, you're always with me. And all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. You see, this older brother had made a tragic mistake. He had never properly interpreted his relationship with his dad. He had always been loved by his father as much as his kid brother. Every act of kindness shown to the younger had or would eventually be shown to him. The father's love had never been conditioned on either boy's behavior or obedience. The father in the story had always loved them both fully and freely. Understand, in a healthy family, everybody gets loved the same. It's all about grace. Grace reigns in a healthy family. You don't have to vie for the family's favor. You don't have to earn your family's acceptance. In a healthy family, love is unconditional. 
Now certainly, a child's behavior will dictate whether he or she can be trusted with specific responsibilities. But the privilege to be loved is a free gift. It springs from a parent's heart. It should never be extended with strings attached. Divine love is never earned, only received. The older brother tried to turn a family of grace into a scary family by creating this sliding scale based on his own performance rather than just trusting and receiving. Once there was a painter who was commissioned to do a portrait of the prodigal son. But you see, he needed a model for his portrait. And so he went into the slums and he found a man filthy from head to toe. This man's eyes were bloodshot and his hair was disheveled and his clothes were tattered. He was the perfect specimen. Well, the painter asked him to report to his studio at 10 o'clock the next morning. Well, at 10 o'clock, the artist walked out into the lobby and he found a gentleman. Clean cut, well groomed, nicely dressed. He asked him if he could be of any service. The man replied, you said be here at 10 o'clock. The painter peered into the fellow's face and he recognized the features of the bum that he had met the day before. But the man's efforts to clean himself up were what caused the painter to send him away. And this is the moral of Jesus' parable. Though the elder brother hadn't lived his life on the wild side, and that was a good thing. I mean, he was spared many painful consequences. That's no small blessing. Nevertheless, in this man's heart, he was as corrupt as his brother. All human nature is prideful and sinful. Don't you get that? Sometimes it's a seed in our hearts. Other times it's a weed in our lives. But you can trace it back to the same seed. It's in all our hearts. The elder brother had just dressed himself up in a facade of respectability and had pretended to be worthy of his dad's love. You see, this is scarier than outright rebellion. This father, he put a robe on the boy who was honest, but he stripped his prideful son of his selfish conceit. He'll do the same to us. Somewhere along the line, this older brother had gotten the false notion that he deserved his father's blessing, and his younger brother didn't. In truth, neither of the brothers deserved their father's blessing his favor, his wealth had always been a free gift initiated by grace. And this is how we need to live. By faith through grace. And this is the way it works in God's family. You see, I'm sure there's some prodigals here today. But even though you've wasted God's gifts and wasted God's blessing, understand my friend, he still loves you. And he will run to welcome you home if you'll make the turn this morning. But there are also some elder brothers here today. You were raised in church. You were saved at an early age. You've been married to the same person your whole life long. You've never cheated on your taxes. I mean, you've never stuck a store item in your purse without paying for it at the checkout. Obviously, you're moral, but you've lacked love. Secretly, you think you're better than other people, even other Christians. For you know more, and you've made sacrifices, and you've cleaned up your life. What's wrong with them? You look down your nose at other people and resent it when God does for others what He doesn't do for you. Can you be happy at somebody else's party? 
I hope we all check our hearts this morning. The world we live in, even our families, are made up of two kinds of prodigals. And life is too short to be either one. Don't be the wasteful son and throw away the blessings and inheritance that God has laid aside for you. But don't be the bitter son either who harbored a selfish grudge and failed to celebrate God's grace. Neither our family or God's family has to be a scary family. We'll all take the fright out of family life when we treasure God's blessings and when we rejoice in God's grace.